Psalm chapter 72. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would guide us in the study of your word tonight. And we pause to submit ourselves humbly under your spirit. To recognize that you are the teacher of your word. We don't determine what it means. You do. And so we submit ourselves to your application of it. Asking that you guide us. And impart your words. Implant your words in our hearts. That we may bear fruit. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, Psalm 72 through 76 this week. As I've mentioned before, the psalm, the entire book of Psalms, I call the Psalter. It's made up of five books. Just like Israel's Torah, or we call the Pentateuch, is made up of five books as well. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And it's been said that God has spoken to Israel through the Torah, through the Pentateuch. And Israel has thus responded to God through the Psalter, through the five books. So we have this, this conversation, this five, these two fivefold books conversing amongst one another. And the parallelism, the five book Psalter, paralleling the five book Torah, is not coincidental. You see, Israel understood that true worship is not just with the lips, but it's through the obedience of the heart to God's law. As you obey Torah, you are walking in worship to God. So no vain speech, no vain songs, no vain repetitions, but a heart that is submitted to God's word and walks in obedience. That's the beginning of worship. And so, until we can do that, we don't understand the Psalter. We don't understand the worship of the Psalms. So, as I've said before, and I will summarize, the Psalter contains the story. It contains a story that it wants to communicate to Israel. And it begins with David and ends with the new David. And so the story is one of Israel and restoration and goes through the encouraging message that God has for an Israelite people in the midst of exile and bondage that he still has hope and a future and he wants to restore them to his purposes. So book one of the Psalter is chapters 1 through 41. We're going to... Um, we're gonna. We did finish that. Excuse me. We finished that a while ago. Book number one, chapters one through forty-one. In that book, we saw David struggling to rise to the throne, and in those psalms, we saw a lot of David's struggles. So, book one is designed to t- to show us the struggle David went through to get to the throne. In book two, chapters forty-two through seventy-two, we see David's reign. We see the Davidic dynasty from David to Solomon. And it will end, as we'll see tonight, Psalm 72, the title says, of Solomon. So it'll end there. And then tonight we'll get into book 3, beginning in chapter 73. And this is the dark book of the Psalter. It gets gloomy. And we see in book 3 the destruction of the Davidic dynasty because of its failure to carry on God's purposes for it. Not eternal destruction, but chastisement of it. So Israel goes into exile by book 3. In book 4, we see Psalms celebrating Yahweh's kingship over the whole world. Because in the absence of the Davidic dynasty, Israel needed reassurance that they still have a king on the throne. It's not David, but it's Yahweh. And so Psalms... 70, uh, excuse me, Psalm 90 through 106 mostly glorify Yahweh as king. And then comes book 5 with the triumphal close and climax. And we see a bunch of Davidic Psalms pop back up in the Psalter. Because book 5 wants to celebrate the restoration of the new David. The son of David promised to come and rule over an eternal kingdom of Israel. So the Psalter closes that climax of a new king that they're looking forward to. Now, tonight, in chapters 72 through 76, we also have a story. 
And I want to briefly give you what the theme of each chapter is, and we'll go into them. So Psalm 72, this is what we see. We see God's intention, his purpose, his mission for the Davidic dynasty, for the kings of Judah and Israel. His purpose for them in Psalm 72. In Psalm 73, we enter into book 3 and we can expect it to get dark. How does it open? It opens with the problem of sin. And the problem of God's people envying sinners. So that's how 73 opens up. This problem with envy for sin. And then in 74, we see the destruction of the temple. The Babylonians coming in and dancing upon the ruins of the temple saying, we've got it now. And I'll show the connection of that as we get into it. And then Psalm 75. Though Israel's in suffering, God promises to exalt them in his due time. I'm going to exalt my suffering people back to glory. And then finally, Psalm 76, we'll see the affirmation of God's power over his enemies. Because as the Babylonians are dancing over the broken temple, all destroyed, and Israel is being moved off into exile, it's easy to think God's been defeated. But God wants to affirm in 76 that I'm not defeated. I allowed these people to come. I chose them to come and mess up my people's nation for my purposes. So that's what this story will tell us. Okay, so... Ready, set, go. Psalm 72. God's intention for David's kingship, for his family, for his dynasty. Now, I should point out that the king of Israel was called, and we see this in Psalm chapter 2, he was called the anointed one. And you'd often see that when uh, Saul was elected as king, what was done to him? The prophets would go and anoint him as the new king. When David was called and chosen to be the new king, the prophet Samuel went and anointed David. And thus we see if every time a king comes, comes in a session to the throne, they are anointed to symbolize that this is God saying, this is my chosen instrument, he's my anointed one. Now, the reason I labor to make that point is because it's important to know that anointed one is the Hebrew word Messiah. So when we hear of the, is the expectations of Israel for a Messiah, we're talking about God's anointed one, whom, of course, we know Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish hopes. Now, what's the purpose of God's Messiah, his lowercase m, Messiah, just the typical anointed one, the king. What's his purpose for him? God allowed the kingship because he was choosing a man through whom he can rule over his nation, over his kingdom. The king was supposed to be in submission to God's kingship. He was the anointed one to allow Yahweh to rule over the people. So, as long as the king was willing to submit to Yahweh, he was a good king. But we see the first king as a tragic failure because his name was Saul. And Saul decided, I'm no anointed one, I'm no Messiah, I am king. So he rules Israel despite God's will. And so he's rejected. Is, um, then David is anointed as a new Messiah, the new king. And he does what God wishes. So David is given a covenant or a promise from God that his throne will endure forever and his kingdom will have no end. 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's God's promise to David. Since you are the one who wants to fulfill my purposes in the kingship, allow me to rule my people through you. I will make your descendants rule forever. So that was the promise. Now, there are reasons to believe that this kingship, let's go with the Davidic dynasty. That's what the promise brought out was the Davidic dynasty. There's reasons to believe that the Davidic dynasty's intention was to be a new Adam. What do I mean by a new Adam? 
I mean an Adam who fulfills what the first Adam failed. The first Adam, in fact, you guys might want to go to Genesis chapter 1 here. The first Adam, we are told, was made in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. Made in the image of God. Now, there are all kinds of implications about what being made in the image of God can mean. And I'm sure you guys have heard many, many suggestions. And I would not throw most of them out. Most of them are probably right. But you would expect the primary meaning of the image of God to be located within the text itself that talks about the image of God. So that's what I want to show. In 127, we see that God created Adam in his own image. And then in verse 28, we discover what that means. It says that God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. That's number one. Number two, and subdue the earth. And number three, have dominion over creation. So, multiply, subdue, and rule. That is what God commissioned Adam to do. That is what it means to be made in the image of God. The image or likeness of God is that Adam is ruling over creation. God is the ruler over creation. So Adam is in God's image to the extent that he rules over creation underneath God's kingship. So in other words, Adam is to become a sub-king underneath God's authority and rule creation on God's behalf. So Adam is, if you will, a Messiah, an anointed one, where God wants to rule creation through this chosen instrument. Now, like Saul, however, Adam fails this commission. He doesn't rule underneath God's authority. That's the whole point of chapter 3 with the um, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is that the offer is don't submit to God's rules here in the garden. Why don't you take up your own rule, your own authority, your own kingship, establish your dynasty, and rule this garden your way. And so Adam obeys the serpent's suggestion, and he becomes his own king. Like Saul. So... Here we have this mess, this failure, and God elects, uh, excuse me, God elects Abraham, who becomes Israel, to become the new Adam, to fulfill what the first Adam failed to do. So, now with all that said, I believe there's reasons to see that connection here in Psalm chapter 72. Look, if you will, with me at verse 8. Now, by the way, this is a prayer over the king. That's what this psalm is. Uh, it's believed to be a prayer for Solomon. Even though the title says of Solomon, it could read for Solomon. So in 72 verse 8, this is what we see. It's a prayer for the king. This is God's intention for the king. Verse 8 says, may the king have dominion. That's, that's, a, that's a word we just saw. Have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. So, the allusions here to Genesis and creation we see is, first, dominion. God wants the king to have dominion. Just like Adam was to have dominion over creation. He's to be a ruler on God's behalf. The second illusion, this one's a little more subtle, but we see that the king's to subdue the earth. He's told, go, take the earth from one river to the other river and to the ends of the earth. Subdue it, take it, conquer it. And then finally, we also see in verse 9 that the king is to make his enemies lick the dust. In Genesis 3.14, God tells the serpent that he is to lick the dust or actually eat the dust all the days of his life. And so here is Israel's king, the new Adam. He's going to have dominion. He's going to subdue the earth, of course, multiply the nation. And he's going to conquer the serpent and the seed of the serpent. That's the king's goal. Go take out the devil's minions. 
his little, his little servants and go take out those nations who serve the devil. Make the enemy lick the dust like it was prophesied over the serpent. So we see that the king, God's intention for the Davidic dynasty is to become the new Adam who fulfills what the old Adam failed. I hope that makes sense for you guys. Now, what would happen if the king faithfully served as God's servant? Well, the psalm gives us five results. The first, in verse 8, as we just saw, is that he'll have dominion over creation. That will be restored. The curse of creation will be restored. Second, the seed of the serpent, all the offspring of the devil, are going to be crushed. We saw that in verse 9. Third, verses 1 through 4, righteousness would be established over all the earth. Righteousness. Verse 1. Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people. Give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. Verse 12. For he delivers the needy when he calls, and the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. So so we see a righteous government, if you will, established where everybody's treated fairly and justly. Righteousness prevails over this kingdom. And then fourth, the earth will yield Edenic-like prosperity and fruitfulness. Edenic-like prosperity in verse 6. May the king be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. And the result, verse 16. May there be abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. Now, grain usually grows in the valleys. So it growing on the mountains is signifying there's not enough room for all the grain. There's so much. Um, so may it be on the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. Um, the, the fruit of the wheat being like Lebanon. That's referring to the trees of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon. Can you imagine wheat the size of cedars? This is Edenic-like prosperity that would result if the king would be faithful to serve as God's king. And finally, fifth, the curse over all the nations will be reversed. What curse? The curse that came from Adam. How everybody is separated from God and is in need of restoration. Remember when God called Abraham in Genesis 12, verse 3. God promised to Abraham, I'm going to use you and your nation to bless all the nations of the earth. And that is fulfilled in, 20, um, in 17, 72 for 17. May the king's name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people be blessed in him. All nations call him blessed. So there's going to be a blessing, this restoration to all the nations of the earth. But, (laughs) verse 20, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. And that ends book two. Now, there's a problem here. Twofold. Um, First, how can the prayers of David be over? Because we see at least 19 more psalms attributed to David after this. How can that be? Well, uh, first, there's one theory. The Psalms were originally in their own little pockets of collection. So you had the Davidic Psalms all in one pocket. And then the, the, uh, the people who compiled the Psalter came and said, okay, we want these Psalms here, these Psalms there, and it just so happened that this Psalm would have been the last of that collection, but it's been reordered. So it just makes sense that it says the last of David, but that was in the original collection it was in, Maybe. Um, it could also be that this is referring to, and the people who compiled the Psalter would have been very brilliant in their thinking here, um, that this is a reference to the end of the historical David Psalms. 
Meaning that the 19 David Psalms that follow are not talking about the King David who died and ruled as the second king of Israel, but the King David who's to come from his line as the promised Messiah to restore Israel. So that this David's, in other words, the Davids that we read after this are referring to the future David, whom the New Testament calls Jesus Christ. Could be. So either way, um, there's, there's a couple of ways to answer that. But here's the second problem. I also see in this perhaps, if, if indeed the Psalters had a story in mind, that this is foreshadowing. 72 saying, this is what the Davidic dynasty should do. We know, because we know history, that they didn't do it. They failed. They were put in exile. And verse 20 is that foreshadowing saying, okay, great, these intentions, restoration to the world, Edenic-like fruit. But the prayers of David are ended. In other words, the Davidic dynasty is done. Maybe. Either way, I think as we were going through this psalm, some of us were thinking in our heads, this sounds awfully like a king called Jesus. This is what Jesus is supposed to do. Not Israel's king, not David. Exactly. You see, as we're going to see in the very next psalm, and the following, and the whole book three, the Davidic dynasty failed God's intention that we see here in 72. They didn't do it. And they decided to become their own kings and not rule underneath God's authority. So, these great expectations in chapter 72 are begging for fulfillment. Oh, the Davidic dynasty failed. Who's going to come and bring restoration to the world? Who's going to crush the seed of the serpent? Who's going to make the fruit multiply? Who's going to bless the nations? Who, who, who? And, (laughs) we know that that answer is fulfilled in Jesus. Because the New Testament tells us that he is the son of David, and he's come to do that. So, that's why some of you might see a messianic kind of tie in the psalm, is because, not because the author decided, I'm going to talk about who Jesus is going to be, but because there was a failure that demands fulfillment that Jesus came to pick up and complete for Israel. So, as we look at Psalm 72, we can now look back and say, this sounds a lot like Jesus' kingdom, because it is. And the realization of many of these spiritual aspects are going to become physical. I pray tomorrow, but we'll see. (laughs) Nobody thought that was funny. Okay, book three. (laughs) Book three, Psalm 73. So here's now where we see the failure of the Davidic dynasty. Book three is going to begin with this problem of envy for sinners. And it's going to end in Psalm 89 with a big lament about how God broke his covenant with David and there's no more Davidic dynasty. Now, the psalm also goes in to translate that it's because of um, chastisement for Israel's sins that he's not breaking the covenant, he's disciplining. But to Israel, it seems devastating and shattering. David's sons are no longer reigning. We don't even have a kingdom. We're exiles. So book three is going to take us to that dark time. And we see... um, Beginning this destruction and failure of the Davidic dynasty, the theme of Psalm 73 is envy for sin. So, give you guys a quick outline of this psalm. We'll see in verse 1 and 2, there's an introduction. You see that truly God is good to Israel. So there's the goodness of God, but then there's also this problem of envy for sin. Verse 2, but as for me... My feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So I almost gave the whole goodness of God thing up because I saw how blessed and fun it seemed that sinners were having. 
Verse 3, we go through his struggle, 3 through 15. He's just battling, like, look at them. They're just talking against God, and nothing's happening to him. It seems like there's no accountability for their actions. They just get away with everything. They're having a, as some of the slogans say, a good time. So the psalmist is having a big problem with this. And it climaxes in verse 13 when he realizes, if it's the case that sinners get off scotch-free, and I am completely envious because I am serving God in vain. That's what he says in 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. And I'm being stricken in verse 14. So he's realizing that if indeed sinners get away and there's no accountability for their actions, I am wasting my life trying to serve this God. So this is what he's struggling with. He finds a solution, at least the turning point, happens in verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. And for some of you, that's true. There's questions pounding on your heart and head and things that are saying, I'm I'm about to slip because these questions are so deep. And you're sitting there going, but it's too wearisome of a task to even think about it. Oh, church, be careful of the temptation to be theologically and mentally lazy. It's just too hard of a question. We have a generation on our heels, and praise God, He's He's redeemed some of them. We have we have a, a generation that is highly skeptical to like the umpteenth power, and most of that's coming because of the church. Don't question the Trinity; just believe it. <laughs> Don't ask those questions. It's all about faith. But. God's given us an intelligent book and I think he asks that we use our brains as we come to it and that we find answers to the tough questions of life. We may not be able to explain everything beautifully but we have answers. We have reasons. Instead of just shutting our youth up and saying just believe it because we're lazy. We're uninformed theologically. Be careful not to fall into that trap. It's too wearisome. Just believe. So He's at that point, but then it says in verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, and there, this temple, there I discerned the sinner's end. So in verse 18 to 22, we see their end. Basically, God will judge them. Not now like we wish, like the psalmist is hoping. But in the end, there will come a time when the seeds they're sowing are going to bring the fruit that they have sown. They're going to reap it. It takes time to grow, though. And so then in verse 23, the psalmist has come to his answers. He's satisfied. Because in verse 23 through 26, he praises the grace of God. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Verse 25 is like the climax of his conclusions, like what he's realized when he went to the temple and saw the goodness of God. This is what he realized. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. The sinners may be getting away with what they're doing for now, but holy moly, I have blessings upon blessings in the Godhead that they are not experiencing. Whom have I on earth besides you? And he goes on, more grace, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And then the conclusion, last two verses, I'm going to summarize to say this. His conclusion is, those who envy sin can be made happy in God. And by happy, I mean content. I don't just mean smile and dancing around. Those who envy sin can be made happy in God. Because that's what the psalmist found out. That's his conclusion. You can be happy in God. So if you're struggling with the envy of sinners, uh, the envy of sin, and you're wondering, why can't I just be like those sinners and hold my faith? The psalmist has an answer. And I wish to come back to this and answer what he discovers at the very end. Because I think that's the pertinent application of our evening. But let's move on. Psalm chapter 74 now. So... 
We saw the problem in 73. That's that there's this tendency to envy sinners. To think like they're having such a good time and I'm abstaining from all that and look at me and what's, what's going on? It seems like nothing's going to work out the way God's promising it will. Well, there are some who in faith said, I found the answer. God is more satisfying than the sinner's good time. And then there's others in Israel who gave in to the envy for sinners. And they said, they are having a good time. They're not judged. Let's go with them. And so the result of following that path is Chapter 74. God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, whom you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. The temple is trampled. And he's saying, direct your steps to them. Trample on them. Because they've trampled on your house. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swung axes in a forest of trees. So what's happening here is that they're setting up banners, signs. It's banners that militaries would fly. And often on the banners they would have emblems of their god or gods. Because they were asking them to participate in the war with them. And so here they are. They come to the temple. They smash it. And they're setting up those banners with the emblems of their gods. It basically says, our god beat your god. And the psalmist is crying like, look at this. And now they're taking the temple as if it's just a forest of trees. And they're hacking everything down. All its carved wood, verse 6, they broke down with hatches and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. So you can see the tragic result of envying sin. You, you want to hang out with the sinners? You're envying them, Israel? Fine. Have them. You know, there's a remnant, and we'll call them the true Israel. There's a remnant that decided to go to the temple and find answers for how to overcome envy for sin, and they found it. But the majority of my people didn't go to the temple and find that answer. So I'll give them what they want. No more temple. You can go with the sinners. Literally, go to their country. The tragic result of envying sin. But there is hope. And we see in verse 12, yet, that's a good turning word, yet God my king is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. Now he's going to refer here to, this is a very difficult text, verses 13 through 17. And you'll see why. It talks about sea monsters, it talks about Leviathan, and it talks about God smashing the heads of these monsters. Um... Some people say that this refers to when Israel crossed the Red Sea and they fled from Egypt. Egypt here is depicted as a monster. And Leviathan is sometimes depicted as a crocodile. That's what some scholars think the Leviathan is. He's a crocodile. And that the crocodile, of course, is an animal from the Nile. So he depicts Egypt coming after Israel. God splits the waters. They come through. And the crocodile is smashed. Well, um, the problem with that is I've never seen a crocodile with multiple heads. As these monsters have, it says in uh, verse 13, 14, crush the heads, plural, of Leviathan, verse 14. Um, And there's really, honestly, there's not much depiction here of the Exodus. None of the same wording we find from the Exodus account. It's just, it's like a separate thing that the psalmist is saying. So here's what I would propose instead is what's being talked about. Um... Borrowing images from your popular culture is a common thing. Okay, we, we do it all the time. We, we, we'll, use, we'll use Star Wars phrases all the time in our conversations or just, just things that we pick up from popular culture. Borrowing imagery is a common way of talking. And that's what I believe the psalmist is doing here. He's borrowing imagery from common culture. Not from Israel's culture, but from the Canaanite culture around him. The Canaanites told the story of creation in a big epic battle between their god Baal and little sea, little, probably big sea creatures in the ocean. And the sea creatures were threats to the control and order of creation. And Baal had to come and, and conquer the sea monsters so that creation can be in control and restored. So that's how the Canaanites told the story of creation. 
There was this bad, lifeless God, and then there was Baal, and Baal killed him and made life. That's their story. Now, I would see, and, and by the way, the, God, uh, the monsters that Baal defeated, many of them were multiple-headed monsters. So, it would seem to me that the psalmist is borrowing from those stories, which was very common knowledge in the culture, and saying, now, now look, our God, now, he, he's not affirming when he borrows this. He's not affirming we believe in those myths. He's not saying that at all. He's just borrowing imagery. And he's showing God as being the true Baal, like better than Baal, conquering all those monsters. He's saying, hey, if God can do that, if he can squash those mythical creatures and crush all the heads of Leviathan, surely he can deal with these monsters trampling his temple. They're nothing compared to those monsters of creation. And so seeing creation as the first salvific act of God saving his own creation in fact Genesis 1-2 implies a little bit that the world was dark and covered with waters and God enacted by bringing light scattering the darkness he brought vegetation and mountains and land and animals to, to make the waters subside God saved creation in the beginning that was his first salvific act and to confirm that Paul quotes from Genesis 1 about our salvation. It says, God called light into darkness, did the same thing to your hearts. So Paul saw creation as God's first salvific act. And that's what the psalmist is doing. God's first act of saving anything was the creation itself. He defeated deathness and brought lightness in life. He brought a controlled creation that is inhabitable, that can support life. And so if God did that, he can take care of your little situation, Israel. He can take care of these beasts as they're referred to in verse 19. They're wild beasts. He can handle them. So that the point is um, God is going to help them. He can do it. Verse seven, or chapter 75. Now, the question is when? <laughs> when will God save? Because in... 74 verse 1, the psalm started, Why do you cast us off forever? And it ended in verse 23, or 22, Arise, O God, defend your cause. Verse 23, Do not forget the clamor of your foes. So it's calling God to action, save. So verse 75 could be the answer. When's God going to do it? Well, the answer is this. In God's time, he will stand up as a judge and bring balance so in verse 2 it says at the set time that I appoint I will judge with equity um, now throughout this we're going to see uh, look like at verse 4 I say to the boastful do not boast and the wicked do not lift up your horn do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck um, horn is a symbol within the Psalms you'll read it all the time it's a symbol of strength and power because it's, it's taking from the imagery of nature that you would have like a ram or some sort of an animal with horns and it would lift up its head kind of like to say that I'm like I've got power like you know how they kind of strut around like a deer will kind of do that and start lifting its head to show its horns and its power um, that's what it's talking about like lifting up the horn just like displaying its power and strength and that's what the wicked are doing they're exalting themselves and that's what they have done to Israel they've exalted themselves over Israel they've trampled the temple so God, in verse 10, says all the horns, the strength, power, of the wicked, I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. So God's answer is, in my time, I will reverse the roles. And I will restore Israel and exalt them. How? Well, here's the application for the present. Exaltation comes not. Exaltation comes not from man, but from God. As verse 5 says, 6, pardon me, verse 6 says, For not from the east or from the west, nor from the wilderness, comes lifting up. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. So Israel, you're not going to restore yourselves it's unfortunate that they didn't buy into that when Jesus came because they have the mindset of overthrowing the Romans ourselves instead of waiting for God's time and God being the one who exalts. And then finally, in Psalm 76. 
God affirms his power over Israel's enemies. Because remember, we saw the signs or the banners being put up in the temple in chapter 74. So what the enemies are saying is, your God didn't save you. Our God is stronger. That's basically what they're saying. And so Israel's like, it's true. Look at the evidence. Well, the psalmist wants Israel to know, no, no. Oh, no. God is way stronger. He just allowed this, okay? So we read chapter 76 like this. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. His dwelling place in Zion, all terms for Jerusalem. There he broke the flashing arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. So those things are coming against Israel. He broke them all. Verse 4, glorious are you, more majestic than the mountains of prey. And the mountains of prey depict a hillside full of the armies of the enemies of Israel. And God is more majestic than those mountains full of prey. And this stout-hearted were stripped of their spoil they sank into sleep all the men of war were unable to use their hands at your rebuke O god of jacob both rider and horse lay stunned and rider and horse is a phrase that comes from the song miriam or moses saying after they crossed the red sea but you you are to be feared who can stand before you when once your anger is roused from the heavens you utter judgment. The earth feared and was still when God rose to establish judgment to save all the humble, true Israel, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely your wrath, pardon me, surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. That verse is awesome. What it means is even man's most cruelest, awesomest, outrageous wrath on earth that wrath looks so pathetic compared to the wrath of God that their wrath is praising him. So like when Babylon comes and tramples over Israel, that wrath is going to make God look even better. Because Israel's like, oh, that was mighty powerful. We can't stand up to Babylon. Well, God's like, oh, watch this. <laughs> make your vows, verse 11, to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. So a little reaffirmation there for Israel that, yeah, 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 Babylon thinks they're all that, but God allowed this and God can in a heartbeat make them look silly. So there is the confidence and the assurance that is instilled in Israel. Now, we still have this problem with the envy of sin. The envy of sin seems to be the turning point for Israel. Um, That's how book 3 opens, the turning point. There's this envy of sin that exists. And apparently, because chapter 74 talks about destruction and exile... Israel followed the envy of sin. They weren't able to overcome that. And that's part of what ruins the Davidic dynasty. That's part of the reason why God was unable to rule through his king over his people and bring restoration to the world like chapter 72 wants to do. And no doubt, you and I have these moments, if not a present, current struggle where we envy the position of sinners. Or there's just a sin that we're craving. And how do we overcome that? How do we become like the psalmist? How do we not let that become our ruin? I mean, the psalmist's conclusion in this chapter, like I told you guys, was it, basically what he concludes is, those who envy sin can become happy in God. They can become content with him. They can get to the point where sinners don't even look desirous and you pity them. Rather than say, oh, why can't I do both? Party with them and, and, and go to church. So how does he come to that conclusion? Especially when we're in the midst of envying sin and we're thinking, if only, if only those rules were in the Bible. If only salvation was the best package, and some people might think this, but if only salvation was the best package ever where I can just live how I want and I'm saved because I said yes to Jesus. Why doesn't it work that way? How does a psalmist get to the place where he can say, <laughs> whatever with envying sin, I'm, I'm past that now. I don't even envy it at all anymore. The answer, envy for sin, 
can become happy in God when you experience God's goodness as revealed in his temple. I can become content in God when I experience his matchless goodness and grace as revealed to me through his temple. That is what the psalmist did. He, remember, he's struggling. Why, why, why have I even been pure this whole time? It's all useless. And then he finally goes to the temple. And suddenly he comes out and he says, ha, 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 the wicked are going to burn, they're going to die, whatever. And, and uh, I, I'm totally satisfied, verse 25, that God is the best thing on this earth for me. How does he suddenly, he goes in the temple and comes out, woo, everything's good. <laughs> I bet you guys are wishing that that's like how it happened here every night. It's just like, walk in, walk out, I'm so good, everything's fixed. So how does he do that? Well, he goes to the temple and there he experiences the goodness of God. I think the goodness of God has to be what he experienced in the temple because he begins his introduction with this. Truly, God is good. So before he talks about this whole envy of sin and stuff and making the readers think, oh, what, what's up? Maybe God isn't good. He wants to affirm, before you see the doubt I went through, God is good. That's my conclusion. That's what I'm saying up front. And then he affirms it at the very end by saying in verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near God. So his whole thesis is that God is good. And it seems because everything turns when he goes into the temple that he experiences the goodness of God in the temple. Okay, so then let's find out what he finds out there. What is the temple? The temple is, put it as simply as possible, where heaven meets earth. Heaven is a dwelling place the ruling place of God. It's where everything works his way. Jesus told us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. So heavens where God has full control is where he dwells. And the temple was provided as that one place on earth where that full reign of God can touch down and meet with man. So, the temple was the dwelling place of God on earth where he can have meetings with man. And this psalmist takes advantage of this. And he flees the temple into God's presence, his dwelling place. The only place where God's rules are an absolute authority. Where he's reigning there in that temple. It's heaven on earth. And there he experiences what you can only experience in the temple. The goodness of God. God's in full control in his house. It's, it's why he rests, Psalm 132 says. He rests in the temple because he is in charge. It's where heaven meets earth. And that's where the psalmist says, oh, the matchless goodness of God's grace. Does he experience that in the temple? He has to because look what happens when he comes out. He speaks nothing but affirmation of the goodness of God's grace. Look at verse 23. He says that God has graced me with support. Um, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God has graced him with guidance in verse 24. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. He is graced with satisfaction, we've often said in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. This is whole change of heart. He was envying sinners. Now he's just like wanting more of God. And then in verse 26, he's graced with strength. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Total, total change of perspective. Because he goes in the temple, the only place where he can see the matchless goodness of God's grace, and he receives it. And he walks out, powered by grace, and he doesn't remember. Was I having a problem with sin before? <laughs> Was I envious of you guys? That's funny, because I'm totally satisfied now with the goodness of God. So, in short, this is what happens. Uh, I'm envying all the good time that the sinners are having. They're not being judged. I think I can worship God and, and go with them. But he says, no, I can't do this. Um, I'm going to go to the temple and find answers. He goes to the temple and he comes out obtaining the goodness of God and empowered by it. And completely satisfied with it. That is the best way to conquer envy for sin. Is simply obtaining the goodness of God's grace. 
Because that's what he does in the temple. He walks out fine. Attaining the goodness of God's grace. Now, let me clarify this because you might think, oh yeah, that's obvious. It's not necessarily how we, the first thing we always jump to. It's not always how we solve this envy with sin. Usually, this is how we do it. We look at sinners and things that we shouldn't be doing and we say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm not supposed to do that. Gosh, look at the fun they're having. But I, I, I have this lifestyle where I'm not allowed to do that. I'm, I'm to abstain from that. I'm to leave that. And so you go, I in the rearview mirror just looking, I wish I could do that. Just trudging along. But the better way is to obtain the goodness of God. And that's what the psalmist does. He may have been at a time where he's saying, can't do that, Uh, abstain, 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 leave, leave, leave. But then he realizes there's another perspective. There's a better way to conquer envy for sin, and that's simply to find something more satisfying than the sin itself. So don't conquer sin by trying to threaten yourself with it. Well, if I do that, I'll lose my salvation. Or if I do that, God won't be happy. Or if I do that, just all these threats. If I do that, that will happen. I won't do that because of this. Rather, find something way more satisfying as the psalmist did in the temple. He, He clung to the goodness, the matchless goodness of God's grace. And he left saying, I am so filled. I have a life that doesn't say abstain from that. I have a life that says obtain the matchless goodness of God's grace. Obtain, obtain, obtain. I don't have a life that says leave, leave, leave that. But it says receive, receive, receive from the majesty of the all beautiful God. He goes in the temple and comes to this place where he sees the magnificent majesty and glory of God being just being given to him through grace and grace and grace. And he walks out being just 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 focused on that. He can't even see the distractions and the things he used to envy because his satisfaction level is like you are after Thanksgiving. <laughs> thirds, fourths, fifths, whatever your stomach can hold, is at some point does not appeal anymore. <laughs> and that's the idea. He learned the secret to faith in God is a life that doesn't say, I abstain and leave these things, but rather I obtain and receive the goodness of God's grace. And I'm completely satisfied in me. That's how he bursts out in verse 25. There's no one that compares to you. And here's where we make the the final connection is that when we are struggling with this envy for sin, you guys might be saying, well, it's great, but, you know, I I don't have a temple to go to. (laughs) But you do. See, see, God has relocated his temple to a much more accessible place. He's relocated his temple in Jesus Christ. And that's, that's how Jesus stands up and says, you destroyed this temple, I will raise it in three days. It's how he can say that we, the church, are the stones of his temple. All we do is we come to Christ and receive the matchless goodness of God's grace in him. And so I want to leave you guys with this question. Tonight, is that what we do with Jesus? Are we receiving from him or are we continually looking at life and saying, well, he's demanding me to abstain from that, to leave that, and I'm going to try to attain all of this righteousness on my own? Or are we going to be here tonight and receive the matchless goodness of God's grace so that we can leave fully satisfied and content and exclaim in verse 25, there's nothing in heaven or on earth that compares to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we come tonight um, empty and open to receive the matchless goodness of your Son's grace. So, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you fall afresh on us, that you would melt us, that you would mold us, that you would fill us, and that you would use us. In Jesus' name, amen.